0: Tom Shaw. Tom Shaw loves and hates. He loves logic and he hates hedges. Isn't there something very majestic about the tree up there on the skyline?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, against the, yeah. the sky with the... Yeah, you can't believe the amount of people who will stop down there and take a picture of that tree, you know. Especially with the sun, know you see people. The
0: tree is in Rathdrum, County Wicklow. What is it? Do you know what kind of tree it is?
1: Sycamore. Oh, okay.
0: Silhouetted on the horizon against a bright sky at the top of a sloping meadow. It's behind Tom Shaw's house. The tree used to have hedges for company on the skyline, but Tom cut them down.
1: I lost this eye in a hedge, you see, and I have an adversion to hedges, you know. <laughs> so I said, I'll clean the sides out of there. <laughs> so... <laughs> I lost the sight of my left eye in an accident when I was eight years old. The reason for that was we didn't have hurls, nor we didn't have a ball. So what we used for a hurl was a stick that we cut for a black stick or something like that. So I got into a black thorn hedge with a hatchet to cut a black stick when I was eight years old and I slapped back and hit in the eye. So uh, that's my earliest memory, really.
0: That's a great bolt. You have the bolt at an angle. <laughs> yeah. Did you put that on yourself? Yeah,
1: I made the gate, yeah.
0: The return is a, is a boat coming
1: out of That's a, right, yeah. Yeah, that was a pipe fitting, yeah. Do people say you're mean? I am mean, yeah. I'm supposed to be mean. I dread waste of any description. Therefore, on what John Kenneth Galbraith would call conventional wisdom, I'm a mean sod, yeah, but that's OK with me, yeah. I was born in a little one-roomed wooden hoot in Wood, and in 1935... And uh, the reason for that was my father was a coal miner, and the company built these little huts for to bring the people close to the workplace. This is rented, grown now, but all across out that way, and up where them cattle are. That was our land, but we sold it.
0: Okay. Was that a wrench? Since you'd spent so much time building up to having a farm.
1: Well, again, I don't look at life like that. I think my duty is to manage my life according to the circumstances in which I find myself. And I found myself in the circumstances then that uh, it was the sensible thing to do. So I do it and forget about it. What sort of an upbringing had I? Brilliant. Couldn't ask for better. No central heating, no running water, no indoor toilet, dry outdoor toilet. Relative to today... It kind of brings tears from stone. But under any circumstance, I think they'd be a great youth because my father and mother were totally dedicated to us. They were disciplinarians, but not over-disciplinarians. We were allowed complete freedom so long as we didn't encroach on other people's rights or sensitivities, you know. My mother always believed that the most important thing she could do for us was to bring us up to be independent. And part of that was... We should be getting out and doing something all of the time. From the time we were this high, my mother would always say, no hobhatchers here, get out. So we were completely free. Down there is Rathrum. So that's West Wicklow over there? Yes. Parnell's place is just to the left of Rathrum there. And And the sea is out behind us? Yes. We'll just go out here. Well... But are you Abelford? Are you OK? Well, oh, I'm Abelford, yeah. OK, well, let's walk. I have, an, o- I have an old miner's chest, you know. So, uh, they're the talking up the hill, you know. That time, what we used to call it hurling, was a kind of a guerrilla warfare, you know. So... so. We would talk about those adventures, you know, and who who stood up to who, and you know all that sort of carry on. (laughs) Mukuli and Wannan Road were two football teams, neighbouring football teams, and. When they met, there was normally a massive, a massive round. Of, you know, could go on for an hour or more and fisticuffs and fighting in the oh, middle of the game. Break, break the sticks off the all oh, the crowds and the dogs. You see, at that time when Gosh. when people were going to matches, they would take the dogs with them. You know, and, and uh, some of the dogs were getting because with all the excitement around them, and the dogs get into a fight. You know, it, just, it was all part of the sport.
0: <laughs> and the fellas were fighting. Did, did the adults not afterwards say to them Grow up Or did your mother ad- not give out ad- to you ad-
1: Adults would be involved in it. Ah well I, w- I wouldn't fight <laughs> <What's> <laughs> you <doing>? I run <laughs> <I ruin. laughs> <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> My mother always said a good run was better than a bad stand So I took her advice <laughs> 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 Well I never thought of this age oh, There's no doubt about that especially from sort of the life I lived, you know. I more or less reach myself, I did. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to prolong it as long as I can. Now, that said, I wouldn't want to prolong it too long either. I wouldn't want to be sort of sitting in the corner and people trying to convince me I'm still alive, you know. And uh, I wonder if I am or not. <laughs> I wouldn't want that kind. That's a problem I have with modern medicine, sort of keeping people alive for too long, you know. Because a life has to entail some sort of quality of life.
0: When Tom was 14, it was time for him to go out to work. Tom's father didn't want him to follow him down the mines and wanted to pay for him to be an apprentice
1: carpenter. Tom would have nothing of it. I would be... Uh, naturally a kind of an independent little sod you know and I didn't want to be a burden as I would see it to my father and mother any further you know so I chose to go underground because there was money to be made there really. You'd go two miles down to get to the cold face. Now, when you started off, there was a big high tunnel, this, nearly as big as this room, you know. So you walked down straight, and as corn as you kept going, the tunnel got smaller and smaller and smaller. And for the last, probably, half a mile or that, you were just going on your hands and knees, you know. And then, eventually, you'd, you'd have to pull your way up for maybe 50 metres up through the place on the 18-inch at the most, and uh, just pull your way up on your tummy up into it, you know. 12 to 18 inches. Yes. The dust would be unnatural now, you wouldn't see a guy six feet away from you, you'd see there, it was like little candles, all your light was down there. There'd be only a halo in the dust, you know, around the candle. And then sometimes you might run into one of those minor falls and it cut off the circle of air. So you'd be working in a hole and a, a candle wouldn't lighten, there wouldn't be enough oxygen for a candle to light. So those were the conditions. We were playing Gaelic and we were in the county final and we decided that we'd go to Tramore to train and we went down by train and came back by train and on the way back I was sitting by a guy and I was telling him I'm working in the coal mines so he was very interested in this and he told me he had brothers out in Canada working in the uranium mines in the north of Canada and he was telling me what the great money they were making, you see. So I said, I'm going there to myself, you know. I didn't know how to get to Canada, you see, and lo and behold, wasn't there an advertisement for farm labourers for Canada? Then I went to Canada.
0: They had paid your passage, had they?
1: No, I paid my own passage. At that stage, I, I was rich by our standards. I'd have nearly a thousand pounds in the bank at that t- stage. You know, and that was a lot of money then. Yeah, but I worked hard in the coal mine and made good money relative to those times. So uh, when I went to Canada, I met the guy from the government and he introduced me to the farmer. This bloody farmer, he was an ex-policeman and he was a religious fundamentalist, very austere, serious sort of a guy. And he outlined for me what my duties would be in the procedure. And he asked me about my religion and I said I was a Catholic. But of course, that was dynamite to them, a Catholic, you know. It was the same as the devil himself, you know. So he told me I wouldn't be able to go to Mass. He said they would be going to mass, and I had to work on the farm to keep things going on the Sunday. And as well, when I got the, they told me what he'd be, be paid. I forget what it was now, but I was actually making more money at home in the coal mine. No different circumstances, and I wasn't going to continue in the coal mine anyway because it wasn't an option. Like there was guys there that were bunched at 30 years old, you know, from inhaling dust and dirt of every description. So I said no. But my aim all of the time was to go to the northwest thirties. And, of course, I was was functionally illiterate, really, then. And uh, I physically, I had only one eye, you see. And at that stage, the medicals would come in, you see. So I discovered I was in quite a a bind in Canada. To do the medical, it was done in what was called the Baker Clinic in Edmonton. And that was just like a, a hotel and the rooms off the corridors all along, you see, and doctors in each room doing the medicals. And on the end of the corridor was the placard for the eye test and a line on the corridor where you put toad and the nurse got you to do the the eye test. But there'd be a queue of us doing that. My right eye was very good, you see. So I learned the chart off my heart, you see. and lo and behold I made it of course you know in the, in the few minutes you're standing in the yes, queue yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, of course thinking is great if you're dealing with the uh, right material you know and I'll tell you one about thinking there's not an absolute in this world nothing so in camp there was a guy come in we'll just call him John and uh he, he uh, had come out of the mental home and so he had a certificate to prove that he was sane enough to come to work. And He, he wasn't there long when he started to go a bit wonky again and uh, he would be meeting him down the yard, you know, somewhere and he'd say, come here, come here. And he was a big, powerful man you normally went when he told you. <laughs> so he'd say, you are crazy. And I'd say, I'm not crazy, not to me, to anyone. I'm not crazy, no, I'm not crazy. Yes, you are. I'm not crazy. Well, OK, he'd say. There's my certificate to prove I'm not crazy. Where's your certificate to prove you're not crazy, you know? Like, that's logical, isn't it? But it just goes to show there's nothing absolute. (laughs) Be careful of the logic also, isn't it?
0: Tell me about the work and, and the mines. Are they open, cast or what?
1: Oh, no, underground, but totally, totally different than the coal mine. You see, to be big caverns, big tunnels and big caverns and all like that there. You just drilled and blasted, you know, and there was water for to keep down the dust and good ventilation and different world. It was a holiday camp, you know, compared. It really was a holiday camp, you know. And there was good money and you were paid good money as well. I didn't know anything about uranium then, obviously I didn't know what the bloody hell it was, but there was procedures there that you go through going underground. Not everyone followed them, but when you'd be going underground, there was a tray of very, very fine aluminium dust that you were supposed to put a a cloth over your head and inhale this dust into your lungs, you see. And I didn't know what it was for, only you were told to do it and I did it. So I presume it was able to counteract the radioactivity, you see, because a lot of those people were dying of lung cancer in in a very small few years, you know. And And you got no side effects from the uranium? Well, not that I know of, anyway. Part of the reason for that would be, when I'd gone to Canada, I'd spent seven and a half years at the coal face, you see, and tremendous dust. And for 10 years after I leaving the coal mine, when I'd get a cold, I'd cough up dust. So, my lungs were probably lined with coal dust, you see. And uh, I'd say that helped me, you know, in the uranium situation. But not everyone there got got lung cancer either, you know. So, it'd be just a theory, that the the, the lining of coal dust would be a help, you know. And tell me about life in in the mining village or the mining town. Like, what did you do all the time? And did you you, just.? you did nothing. You only worked. That's all. Worked, slept, and eat and that was it. My brother, Dan, used to send me the Farmer's Journal every week. I became very determined that I was going to make all the money I could and come home by a farm. I'd be independent then and hump the rest of the world as far as I was concerned, you see. I managed to stay in 32 months at one time. And I worked every day at that 32 months, Saturday, Sunday, Christmas Day and New Year's Day, and there almost a thousand days without taking a day off.
0: No, what about women and society? No, and no women, there was no society. What about you needing something like that? Like, Did you not end up being a terribly boring man at the end of that period of time? Well, some people say I still am. yes. You know.
1: <laughs> but no, the thing about it is that those people in the camps would be mostly people from Europe who had been through the war, either as soldiers or children, you know. So I found this fascinating with all the different nationalities and I would discuss freely with any of them, you know, their situation and I liked that and I got on very well with them all, you know. So I was a kind of an armchair psychologist there uh, which occupied some of my, a lot of my interests really. And then eventually... I began to read a little bit. I wouldn't have been much... I still not much that good at reading. So uh, my social life was reading a little and discussing life and those people's existence, you know, through the war. And, uh, yeah.
0: Why did you not, after 32 months in a camp, not go and blow it? And what did you do? Did you go and get a a big dinner and go to the cinema? Or what did you do when you came off the camp?
1: Well, I always remember the first time I came off the camp because... uh, I, when, at that time, when I, I was in Comer, in the mines, the, well, another thing, we'd go to the films, you see. At that time, it was all champagne, you know. Champagne was the big thing. Of course, when I came out first time, I thought, there's one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to get a bottle of champagne, you see, to taste this champagne, really live it up, you know. So I got a bottle of champagne. I went down to the, what they call the beer parlor, and I got this bottle of champagne, and know, I said, I'd sneak off to the hotel room for myself and have a go to the champagne and see what it's like. So, of course... I didn't have a clue, so when I was trying to open it, I gave it a bit of a shake, you know. So when I got the cork out, most of the bottle wound up in the ceiling. <laughs> but, anyway, <laughs> but anyway, I didn't like the bloody taste <laughs> you know. So it's things like that you be you go And then I, the, the Chinese, of course, that was, I never did know what a Chinaman was, before, before I went to Canada, but these Chinese restaurants in Edmonton, you know, was, was the big thing, you know. So I said, I'm going to get a real Chinese feed, you see, too. And went to a very fancy Chinese restaurant I went into, you see, when I came out, because I was only moping around, trying to pass the time to get back in again, into this Chinese <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> and the Chinese came over to me with a menu, you see. He's to have a bloody clue what was on the menu, you see. So I told him, I look, at it, I want a good Chinese meal, I'd huh? I had a job for to try and get this across, you know, and get him to accept that he'd be... So he brought me this Chinese... <laughs> <laughs> uh, to me, it looked like haul worms, <laughs> so I couldn't tackle it at all. <laughs> so, those were the things that was happening, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I was learning all the way. <laughs> Experience. You were, you're, you're presumably banking an awful lot of money then as well. I was banking a fair bit of money. Yeah, I was able to come home by a farm. yes. Yeah. when I came home to farm. There was what was called the fifteen-pound heifer scheme. You never heard of that, it's a, And I uh, bought seventy-five heifers and put them in calf, and applied for the heifer scheme. And the inspector came out and inspected the thing, and he said, "You don't qualify." And I said, "Why don't I qualify?" This is corruption on Ireland, really. Yeah, I said, "Why don't I qualify?" Uh, he said, you don't have a cow. What's the matter of fact, I do have a cow? I said, because I'm milking one for the, for the house. And I uh, took myself from the dog. <laughs> and we were both drinking milk like cows because I was milking this cow. So, uh, well, he said, you still don't qualify. And I said, why not? So he walked away. I was telling a friend of mine, and he says, Tom, I'm yeah, afraid you're too long out of the system. He said, you don't understand how things go. And I said, why, why is that? He said, do you see them guys, a lot of them guys in the department, they're political appointments, you know. He said, a lot of them. And they feel they owe it to the TD. They'll turn you down. And you go to the TD, and they'll get it for you. Then you're under compliments to the TD. And he said, he to- he said, Tom, I'll take it. Name it the TD. The man is probably dead now, and he wouldn't have been the only one involved. I don't want to name him now. Name the TD. I should go. He'd take me to. And I said, Pat, I'd live on Searles in the mountain before I do that. And anyone I told, they told me I was an idiot, and they were dead right. I did, that didn't dawn on me till years down along the line when I saw nearly everything in Ireland is corrupt. You know, I was an idiot. I should have just fell in with the corruption and <laughs> forget about it.
0: Tom was so disillusioned that he sold the farm. He planned to emigrate or go to sea, but realized his lack of education held him back. Eventually, he found another farm to buy. This time in Tullamore. While there, one of his old bosses from Canada came seeking him out. The Avoca mines in Wicklow were being opened, and he wanted Tom to work as a personnel manager there. Tom sold Tullamore and moved to Rathdrum, County Wicklow, where he bought another farm. The Avoca mines eventually closed, but Tom wasn't disappointed. They had brought him to a farm he liked and a woman he loved and married. Kate had worked at the mines. Kate and Tom have no children, something he's not sorry about.
1: I genuinely and honestly don't see any long-term future for humanity. No, no way. And how is it going to come? Nuclear war, global warming, science could drag us down a blind alleyway on some of the things they're doing.
0: Tom Shaw, part-time farmer, full-time thinker.